Hello and welcome to another episode of Prove Me Wrong, Please. My name is Connor, and for today's episode, I am once again joined by my friend Jacob to discuss the topic of court packing. Jacob is a conservative and former Republican Hill staffer who is finishing up law school at Southern Methodist University. So when he reached out recently to suggest we talk about this issue of restructuring the Supreme Court, I obviously was excited to jump at the opportunity, not only because I wanted to hear his thoughts on the rather contentious issue, but also because Jacob represents, to me, an endangered species. And by that, I mean a reasonable Republican, which I know is kind of an oxymoron. But the whole point of this podcast, as I've tried to make clear in previous episodes, is to converse with those of differing opinions, uh, often across the aisle, in order to build just a better understanding of each other's positions instead of just relying entirely on new sound bites to inform perceptions of the opposing side. Now, in the first part of our conversation, we briefly discuss what court packing actually means, along with the history of it in American politics. We also talk about the degree to which a judge's decision-making is potentially influenced by religion and their personal political ideology. And finally, we discuss the arguments for packing the Supreme Court uh, before getting into the arguments opposed to it, and specifically where President Biden currently stands on the issue. As always, I encourage folks who disagree with anything we say to prove me wrong, please, by reaching out to me via email at pmwp.pod at gmail.com. You're also welcome to just reach out if you want to share your thoughts or propose a topic of discussion for future episodes. Anyways, without further ado, here is our conversation about court packing and the future of American democracy. Enjoy. All right. Well, Jacob, thanks uh, for for joining me again. Um, Last time we spoke, you know, we had a great conversation. I mean, the whole point of this is to talk with folks that I don't necessarily agree with. I think, I mean, from our last conversation, there, there are a lot of points that we kind of did agree on. And so I'm, I think this topic of core packing is one that you being a law student probably have a little bit more knowledge. And so I'm looking forward to kind of getting your background and thoughts on, because I think it's something that is gaining a lot more traction in the news as it regards to politics. So yeah, thanks for, for joining. No, well, thank you for having me. And I think you make a good point that just generally people tend to agree on more than they think and just having these conversations is part of it, right? Yeah, for sure. Um, so I think before we kind of like jump into it, we should just explain what is core packing for those who are not law students or self-described political nerds uh, like ourselves. Um, and so I, I think, uh, is this something you kind of want to start off and just kind of give your brief thoughts on? Yeah, yeah, I, I, I can go, uh, I can give a brief rundown. So basically, the idea is that um, you can increase this up. I think the context where it's most frequently talked about is increasing the size of the Supreme Court. Um, because this number of justices on the Supreme Court is not set by the Constitution or anything like that. It's set by a statute, um, so a law that Congress passed. So at any point, Congress could repass or change or modify or pass a new statute and say 13 justices, which I think is the the number that comes up a lot uh, these days. And then the Senate would have to go ahead and confirm them through a normal process. But that's the end of it after that. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think within that, you know, the Supreme Court has changed significantly or at least changed significantly in size in the first about 100 years of uh, of the country, but has been set at nine justices for, I believe, the last 150 years or so. 
Yeah. So I think the last time it changed was in 1869. Um, and since 1789, so 100 years or almost 100 years prior, the number of justices has changed seven times. Um, so yeah, just to reiterate, it, it is constitutional to add or remove justices. Um, the last time that perhaps has the most notoriety was when FDR was president and he threatened to pack the court in order to um, advance some of uh, some parts of the New Deal that were being kind of obstructed by the Supreme Court. Ultimately, he failed to actually pack the court, but the threat itself kind of works because a large uh, segment of the New Deal was uh, able to pass uh, as a result of that threat. Um, but yeah, I mean, basically, it, it, I mentioned it's sort of been gaining traction recently because uh, Democrats, you know, upset over the fact that Donald Trump was able to appoint two justices, uh, one of which a lot of Democrats, myself included, argue he illegally or Republicans in the Senate essentially stole from Obama, which was Neil, Gorsuch, Neil Gorsuch's seat uh, from Merrick Garland. Um, this is a, a topic that is uh, being discussed as one of many uh, that Democrats are considering to kind of rebalance the, the levers of you know, one branch of government. Um, I, I would note that Joe Biden, who throughout the campaign during the primaries, uh, and just the general election kind of avoided the topic, said he was opposed to it. He did, I think, a few months ago um, appoint a pretty large panel of like 30 uh, constitutional scholars and lawyers and whatnot to kind of examine what kind of judicial reforms there are, including court packing. We'll kind of get into later on in the conversation other kind of judicial reforms, but for now we'll kind of just focus on uh, court packing but that commission is still ongoing. They're going to propose some kind of recommendations, nothing binding, of course, um, but also kind of to rewind even further back to the primaries. I believe the only Democratic candidate at the time who really advocated openly for court packing was Buttigieg, who uh, suggested a 555 uh, proposal in which there are five Republican justices or justices appointed by Republicans, uh, five Democratic justices, and then five that the 10 justices would have to agree on. And the idea being, if the 10 justices did not come to an agreement on those remaining five, then the court would shut down for a year. Um, yeah. So I believe I have all that correct. And I could be wrong. I think since uh, the uh, general election in November, uh, some you know high profile Democratic candidates or just politicians in general might have changed their positions, but I'm not really sure. Um, all I know is that at the time, Buttigieg was the only one really kind of advocating for it. Does that sound right to you? It does. That does. <clears throat> um, so I guess let's just kind of get into the arguments for it, and then we can kind of talk about the arguments against court packing. Does that sound good? Yeah, works for me. Um, all right. So I, I kind of broke down the arguments for court packing into three. I think there are many different ones and they all kind of overlap. Um, but the three that I kind of came up with was first, you know, the last, and like I mentioned, the last three justices have been appointed by a president who lost the popular vote. Uh, Trump alone has nominated about a fifth of the total, total federal bench. So not just the Supreme Court, but, you know, the, the district courts, the circuit courts of appeals. Uh, as well. Um, and 
that includes like he he appointed like one less federal appeals court judge than Obama did in about half the amount of time. So a lot of Democrats are just argue or arguing that essentially he has disproportionately appointed justices despite not receiving the popular vote. Um, so that's one argument. Uh, do you want to kind of jump into that or kind of yeah. move on to the other kind of points? Yeah, I could, I could go there. Um, okay. And so I, I think that it's, you have to look at that argument within the context of the presidency itself, right? Um, I mean, I don't think there's any debate that, uh, or at least a lot of debate over, Trump was the president. Um, mm-hmm. And I, he did lose the popular vote. Nobody contests that either. Um, but by our systems of government, by our laws that govern us, he was the president. And not making a comment on the, the merits of the electoral college versus like a true popular vote count. Um, he was the president and he exercised that duty. So I think that it's hard to make that argument um, because it's essentially a legitimacy argument is, is, as I understand it, right? Um, it's hard to make a legitimacy argument when he was legitimately elected president. And also I think that opens the door up to a whole host of conversations about could Trump sign a law, for instance, if he's not really the president, can he sign the law? Like a lot of things like that. Um, and regardless of whether or not he, I, I, I think he did have a disproportionate effect on nominating judges uh, throughout the system, but that's his job as the president. Um, yeah, I, I would, I, not to interrupt, I would agree. I think of the three, this is kind of like the weakest argument. Like if we really want to go down this track, you would have to first talk about the electoral college and just like reforming, like how you elect a president in the first place. Um, I think the only difference would be, I think it's important to separate, you know, Neil Gorsuch's seat from Amy Coney Barrett's. And this is something that I think you mentioned uh, beforehand, like you can't have Democrats essentially can't have it both ways. If Gorsuch's seat was stolen, then you can't because uh, he was, you know, held held off during uh, while Obama was president. Then you can't essentially say the same for Amy Coney Barrett, who was also nominated while Trump was president. Um, right. Either the president has the, the legitimate or the ability to fill a seat in an election year or the president doesn't. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. I think with regards to like the popular vote, the the general sentiment of the court reflecting the interests of an ever decreasing minority of powerful interests, that is something that I definitely identify with. But again, you can't I don't think you can really, uh, you know, blame, not necessarily blame. That's not the right word, but. I don't think it's a strong argument to say that just because he lost a popular vote doesn't mean that he should have those picks when that's a whole nother can of worms with regards to electoral politics and just the electoral college. Yeah. Um, It sounds like we're on the same page here. Um, And I, I, I mean, I think there are legitimate concerns about some of the other things you mentioned, but I don't think you can get to them through this Avenue, I guess. Um, The second sort of argument for it, uh, for packing the courts is uh, expanding it would allow for more bipartisanship. And so this is sort of what was reflected in the proposal by Buttigieg, which he argues would uh, eliminate the need to kind of appoint these lifetime appointments and find younger justices. And that's sort of the 555 method. And I'm curious, like, what are your thoughts on on that uh, particular approach? And do you think that there, it has any merits? Um, so 
I always like to start with the practical. So I think, as I understand it, the 555 proposal would probably require a constitutional amendment um, because it's dictating not only the size, but who is appointing who and how that process works. And so I think, you know, Democrats could pass a law tomorrow or like the, the Senate and the House could pass a law tomorrow saying that the size of the Supreme Court is 15. But I don't think they would be able to pass a law saying five can nominate or five justices by Democrats, five by Republicans, and then the 10 find the other five, if that makes sense. Why, why do you separate those two? Like you just think it'd be too difficult for their... No, I just, I, I think that at that point, you're not only formally changing how the judges are selected, which is in the constitution, but dictating who can pick who as a way around the constitution. And so um, I, this is, not an area of expertise for me, but my understanding is that you would need to cha physically change the constitution to make that happen, mm -hmm. which obviously requires, I think it's two thirds of states ratification, um, as well as a supermajority in Congress, among other things. Yeah, so that, that faces a really high bar, but in terms of the merits, I, don't, um, I mean, I, I have strong opinions about how judges make decisions that are not necessarily shared by a lot of other people, but, um, I like, think what, that, what do you what do you mean by that? Because you, I mean you you've worked closely with judge, uh, judges. Like how how much do you think that in your experience they take into account like their own partisan leanings versus just like purely looking at the merits of an argument? Um, so I want to break that into two. So okay. the first question, like how they go about decision making, I think varies heavily judge to judge. Um, and I'll preface this with the the note that I have the opinion that a lot of judges are not political in the sense that they do their best to apply the law as written and execute it in a manner faithful with the law. Um, I know there are definitely judges who are political, who pick a result and end up there. Um, mm -hmm. But I think they represent a very small number of what I would consider bad actors in the system. Um, and I, so I, I think it's, and certainly there are, like I said, certainly there are bad actors, but I think the vast majority of judges attempt to do, do their jobs to the best of their ability and do not let their own personal feelings come into play. Um, obviously, when you get into really complex issues, it's hard to really sort out like just how you think because that's what you're doing, right? Um, there are plenty of examples like that. Um, so like the law school example they always give is, um, they call it no vehicles in the park. You pass an ordinance saying no vehicles in the park. Well, what does an ordinance mean? Or like, what does vehicle mean in this context? Um, and you can go into a lot of debate. It can depend on what you know about the situation. So for instance, if you know that the city council passed this ordinance to try to make the park safer because you can't have you know cars running through there, right? Everybody's gonna agree that a car can't go in there, but what about an ambulance, a fire truck? And so you start getting into these issues where the further on you go down this line, the harder it is to keep your personal opinions outside of things, I guess. Um, and that's a really simple occasion. I would encourage people listening to look that up because it's just a very interesting thought exercise. Um, I, I'm curious, like, to what extent you think religion plays a factor in judges' decision-making as opposed to just, like, their partisan leanings. But I, I, again, like, I don't know how easy that is to really interpret from the sidelines. I think it's, it's, uh, religion is one of those things too that's just hard for you if you were very religious it's going to be hard for you to separate out how that interplays through your entire thought process mm -hmm. um 
And so I think it's, I think it's naive to ignore the personal preferences and how a judge or in the like political preferences of a judge um, go into this factor. But I think for the vast majority of judges, it is very overstated how much that comes into play. Um, and I think, so especially at the lower levels of court, so federal district court level, you're very rarely going to have an issue where the partisan preferences of a judge or um, might would affect it because their job, they don't have the ability to rewrite law. They just basically get to apply the law. Um, and if they get to an area like the gray area, then they kind of go from there. Mm-hmm. Um, but for the vast majority of things, there are circuit court opinions and Supreme Court opinions that are telling them what to do. Um, circuit court judges tend to have a little bit more flexibility because they typically face more new questions that are an unsettled area of law. And then their only binding source is the Supreme Court. Now, obviously the Supreme Court, while they have rules and they have jurisprudential traditions that they tend to follow, has an extreme amount of flexibility, especially relative to the lower courts. Mm -hmm. So the higher you go up the totem pole, the more and more that your way of thinking affects the law as is. Yeah. And I mean, on that note, I, I mean, I'd like to believe that religion doesn't play like a huge factor in people's decision-making. I mean, as you noted, obviously it does in terms of just like how they come to a decision in general, but I'm interested to see how this court, especially with the two new judges, which, I mean, this court, I think like what, six of the nine are pretty, well, are Catholic, um, let alone like pretty religious. I'm interested to see what happens with regards to overturning Roe v. Wade before I can agree with the, uh, the notion that, you know, religious uh, um, opinions are kind of omitted from, from decision-making. Well, I think this is a fa- This is actually a fantastic example of what I was talking about. So the Dobbs case that just got taken up by the Supreme Court is a great example of how what a judge may or may not want to do is very dependent on where they are in the structure. So this law was struck down at the district court level, if I remember correctly, because it is incompatible with KCV Planned Parenthood Roe v. Wade. The Fifth Circuit, the most conservative judicial circuit, basically said, we want to strike this down because we don't agree with it and we think this has a host of problems, but we are bound by Supreme Court president, which says this is okay. Um, And then the Supreme Court obviously will have the opportunity to change or modify their past jurisprudence on this matter or keep it the same. Um, But I think it's reflective of how the vast majority of judges do not have this opportunity as, or at least as much as um, it's kind of implied to really change the law in a way to align with whatever they think on a certain issue. Because they have to uphold precedent you're saying. Right. Especially when it's from the Supreme court down. Yeah. Got it. Okay. Um, So we kind of went on a tangent. Uh, The last, uh, the third argument for expanding the court um, and I think it's perhaps the strongest argument uh, is that it's essentially the quickest and easiest solution to protecting democracy. And I know that sounds kind of hyperbolic, uh, but a lot of Democrats, myself included, would argue that American democracy is essentially hanging on by a thread right now. Um, perhaps it's a little bit premature uh, of an argument to make, but I think that with a Supreme Court that is hostile to a lot of the legislative reforms that are going through Congress right now that are probably going to die in the Senate anyways, if the filibuster isn't removed. 
um, such as the Voting Rights Act uh, or just HR1, all these things that are trying to make voting easier and establish, for the most part, bipartisan democratic reforms with a Supreme Court that's essentially hostile to a lot of those reforms, it doesn't really matter if they pass through Congress, if one day they're essentially gonna be uh, invalidated. What are, what are your thoughts on sort of that argument um, in terms of just legitimizing uh, some of the basic democratic norms and reforms that Democrats have been trying to push for years? Yeah, um, I mean, I think ultimately part of it is gonna depend on what eventually gets through. Um, so like, for instance, if we look at the Voting Rights Act and the preclearance that was struck down in Shelby v. Holder about eight years ago at this point, mm-hmm. um, the court, as I, if I've read the opinion, the court basically said, because the formula for determining whether a, because the Southern states were essentially probably justifiably had to go through extra hoops to change voting regulations and voting requirements and things. Just to be clear, Southern states that had a history of racially profiling with regards to election laws. Correct. Yeah. Um, most of the Southern states did that. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but the Supreme Court struck that provision down on the grounds that the formula used to calculate that was outdated. Right. There's nothing that says that the Supreme Court would uphold or strike down Congress going back and revising the formula. And I think this this reform that reform is actually included in the John uh, John Lewis Voting Rights Act. Yeah, I remember. Yeah, it is. Yeah. Um, so I mean, I think that a revision of the formula stands a pretty good chance of being upheld if it ever makes it all the way up. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's the clearest cut example because you have them saying this is bad, and then we've got an updated version potentially coming down the line. Some of the other ones, it's I think ultimately would depend on what uh, is eventually challenged and makes its way up there. What are your thoughts about like a, a court though? And again, I guess this is premature, you know, to assume prior to actually seeing the court make a decision on things like abortion or like the Affordable Care Act or even gay rights, things that have widespread bipartisan, largely support around the country. Uh, what What are your thoughts on the argument that just like a court, the current court is partisan, is not independent and is very much opposed to a lot of these sort of big ideas um, and movements that have a lot of support nationwide? Yeah, um, I don't think that the past four years have done the court any favors in terms of how it's viewed as a partisan instrument. And I think for the most part, the vast majority of those things have been outside the court's control. So you can start with Donald Trump basically running on, hey, I'm going to confirm or nominate and confirm these people um, to the Senate tying these things in such an intense way to partisan politics. Um, and it's hard for me to get a good read on exactly, how, like I said, it's hard to get a read on these things coming down before they're challenged because um, so much will depend on the final form. Um, but I think to a certain extent, you know, the court necessarily doesn't need to be beholden to um, these super polarizing issues. The court has made plenty of decisions in the past that I, I think generally for the better that weren't popular, um, at least nationally. So, I mean, Brown v. Board was an unpopular decision when it came down. It took years to implement. Um, you, you know, you can pull a number of them. Um, so I don't, certainly there are things that the court should restrain itself from um, some handling, um, but it's a very difficult issue to kind of parse through what is okay because it's bipartisan and popular 
and what is not okay because it violates the constitution or um, some of these natural rights and so on, I guess. Okay. Um, before we switch over to the arguments uh, against court packing, I, I do want to note, I mean, we are talking largely about the Supreme court, but I mean, a lot of the federal and like state courts, they're already had, well, not federal courts, but state courts, there has been some degree of court packing. I, I believe Arizona and Georgia have changed recently the number of justices on their state Supreme courts uh, and numerous other mostly conservative legislatures, um, state legislatures have also attempted to pack the courts. Granted, the majority of them have failed. Uh, I think in large part because the, just the term court packing and just like changing the makeup of a court just carries a negative connotation. Um, but just to point out like this, this notion of court packing in general is not new. I mean, as you, we mentioned at the top, it's something that has been happening or has happened many times throughout American history. Um, and, and is happening on a lower level at the state level. But um, yeah, and I, I think it's also important to distinguish as well that a lot of state judiciaries are elected anyway. So mm-hmm. I, in Texas, for instance, um, almost every judicial seat, if not every judicial seat is elected position. So it's frequently judges will run, I'm a Republican or I'm a Democrat. And I, I hate that system. I think it's ridiculous that we have that, but um so they don't they don't have lifetime appointments in right no like they have terms yeah um and I, I just think it's ridiculous that we're opening up um that texas runs its entire court system off this elected paradigm where you basically have to keep campaigning while you're in office so you like much higher incentive to come to the politically popular decision over anything else um and i mean you frequently get these um and I mean, not, that's not to say that every opinion is bad, but you frequently get these issues where, for instance, um, like the state Democratic Party of Texas will challenge uh, Texas voting law in Texas court, um, as happened in this past election cycle. It goes all the way up to the Supreme Court of Texas, which is all Republicans. And it creates this inherent kind of, are you, do you trust that to come to the right way? I know I certainly wouldn't. Yeah. Um, especially if I had been one of the people challenging that. Um, yeah. I, I mean, I hate the state judicial system in Texas. I think it needs to be entirely reformed, but that's a whole nother issue. Yeah. Your energy infrastructure as well. But that, again, different, different conversation. <laughs> Fair, enough. Fair enough. Hey, it's just me again. Before I drop you into the second half of my conversation with Jacob, during which we discuss the arguments against court packing, other judicial reforms, restoring trust in government, and the overall fate of American democracy, I want to encourage folks to check out the work of David Ferris, who is perhaps the leading voice for packing the court. I don't entirely agree with everything he proposes, but he certainly does a better job at explaining why he believes such a measure, uh, while drastic, is necessary in this moment of American politics, and how Republicans have been essentially packing the federal courts for years. Maybe he's right, but I still am just not entirely sold that adding justices is even remotely possible with this current Congress. Anyways, with all that said, here is the second half of our conversation. All right, well, let's transition into the arguments against court packing, arguments that I think are largely coming from the right. Um, So I can kind of go through my three, and if you have more that you want to jump in uh, and add, feel free. Um, Yeah. 
The the first is that it would kind of delegitimize the court itself um, because, you know, the court is supposed to be an independent body. Um, and I'll, before I kind of let you kind of jump and go in a little bit more detail on your thoughts with regards to that argument, I, I would argue, and I think I mentioned this earlier, that the court really has never been independent. Um, and I think currently it's got a six to three conservative majority. So it's hard for me to kind of buy the notion that it is fully independent when I see a lot of the people on that court and looking back at their kind of judicial history and decision-making very sort of partisan in, in my mind. Um, I don't know. What, what are your, what are your thoughts? Like, do you still think the majority of Americans view the Supreme court as independent? Oh, I don't know, but I, I wouldn't shock me either way, frankly, probably would lean towards, I don't think most people do. Yeah. Um, and I, I don't think it was ever meant to be truly independent in the sense that, um, you know, it's its own deal, self-contained. Because, I mean, the founders built in the clause where Congress appoints or Congress appoints after presidential nomination, mm-hmm. which were meant to be the inherent checks on it. Um, and I guess the, safe, the safeguard against that was supposed to be in part the lifetime appointments so that you didn't feel like to prevent things like in Texas where you're comp- like continually having to campaign for a spot. Um, and I, I mean, I think I would agree that generally most Americans have lost a lot of faith in the court. And I'm sure we could find some polling data on that. But. Oh, yeah. I, I can, after this, kind of look into that and try to find more um, data. Um, I guess more another argument kind of similar is just that restructuring the court to fit to fit one party's agenda, in this case, the Democratic Party, would just be like the start of the breakdown of democracy. Um, if you look at actions from a lot of authoritarians around the world, including, you know, Hugo Chavez, uh, Erdogan in Turkey, Viktor Orban in Hungary, they've all kind of followed the playbook of expanding the court with loyalists within the last uh, 10 to 20 years. Um, and so I, the argument being like, you know, by doing so here in the U.S., you're essentially following that exact same process of trying to, again, sort of delegitimize the court and pack it with ideologues who just want to further advance your agenda. Again, yeah. if you have any thoughts on that, I'm not saying I agree with it necessarily, but like, that's a, another argument. Well, so I, I don't know what your third point is, but it seems like my, my understanding of this issue as a whole is that everybody wants to have more faith in Supreme court. Right. And it's the question about how we get there. Um, and what, what, what the process is to get there. And um, I think that the best argument to do it is try to restore some of these norms around the process, but there are a, re- a lot of reasons why my approach won't work. Um, but I, I don't think anybody's debating that we want a more legitimate Supreme Court. It's what the question of what a more legitimate Supreme Court means, right? Um, everybody wants to have more faith in the judiciary, I guess. Mm-hmm. My, so my third argument uh, against it is just the one that I think is has the most legitimacy, which is that it would just lead to a constant back and forth and uh, just instability of the court. So if Biden and the Democratic-controlled Congress were to, by some miracle, pack this court, then the next uh, president, uh, Republican president, your God, hopefully not Trump, uh, could do essentially the exact same thing. And it would just like go back and forth, back and forth, uh, leading to, again, a further breakdown of the Supreme Court, which is obviously a very important institution for a functioning democracy. 
Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I agree generally with all three of those points, but like I said, it, all three of the points are just, we want more legitimacy in the institution and it's how we build that legitimacy, I guess. So cause a lot, I'm sorry. Oh no, go ahead. I was just going to say, cause all three of your arguments for as well, we're all about the legitimacy and trusting, basically trusting the process, right. Mm-hmm. That the process comes to the, the correct decision. Um, one that's not influenced by partisan politics in a way that our other institutions like the presidency and Congress are. So you want to talk about like other potential judicial reforms? Uh, specifically about the Supreme court or just, yeah. You know? Yeah. So the Supreme court. So like one that I mentioned earlier uh, term limits, I think that's something that a lot of people have brought up Um what, what, I guess, like, what are your, what are your thoughts on that? Because to me, that seems like, I mean, first of all, I think congressmen should have term limits so that, and with regards to the Supreme court though. Uh, so we're not having presidents trying to nominate like the youngest justice who will just serve a lifetime. Um, and that justice would most likely be a little bit less experienced and much more, um, of an ideologue. Yeah. Um, so I'd start with this. That would require a constitutional amendment as well. Just term, term limits that, would? Yeah. Um, on both counts, actually. But um, So dead in the water, essentially, is what you're saying. Yeah. Um, and I, I also don't know if, it, if it's the best solution. So I'll, I'll say, for instance, I'm against term limits for members of Congress, um, which tends to be a, le- like a fairly popular conservative position. Uh, because, I mean, we already deal with a Congress that doesn't know what the hell it's doing. Like, you've got people like Madison Cawthorn, who didn't even hire a policy staff. And I mean, tons of issues with him. Yeah, but like, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, that's an easy one for this argument. It's like, you want people in Congress who know what they're doing. And the only way you know what you're doing is if you've been around for a while, right? Um, and so- but don't, or don't you think there's like kind of a limit, though? Like when you are just so kind of entrenched that you're- like there is, you almost just like lose touch with your constituency. Like I, I kind of agree with you. Like I'm not hundred percent sold on term limits because I do understand that there are people in, con- I mean, someone that I really like Nancy Pelosi, like she, has, she is very influential because it's taken her this long to develop all of the skills necessary to actually get to that position of power. And with term limits, you wouldn't have that level of uh, policymaking. Yeah, I mean, maybe maybe there's a maybe there's a point way out in the future, or, or excuse me, like after a number of years. Mm-hmm. But I think the numbers that I hear consistently tossed around are like it's either three or four terms for the House of Representatives and like two terms for the oh, Senate. Oh, what? Yeah, no, it's that's... very short. <laughs> yeah, so that's three eight, eight years. House, yeah, 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 three or four years in the House is not a lot, or three or four terms in the House is not a lot. Yeah, like maybe when you start hitting like the twenty-year mark, maybe. Um, but I tend to err on the side of, I would prefer people to have more experience and be slightly out of touch than have no experience and basically have to outsource their, um, legislative function to people who like lobbyists or people who've been around the Hill for a while. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Speaking of Madison Cawthorn. Yeah. He, his, for those listening, he did not, uh, develop a legislative team and spent all of his focus on his PR, which seems to be working because he's now a very popular, like Trump acolyte, I think. Yeah. Uh, also, this is the same guy who took a picture at Hitler's bunker in Germany and said, I think like in a Instagram post, like I've always dreamed about 
being here. Like what a what a fucking. I think it was like fascist. I crossed like, this off my bucket list or something like yeah, that. Yeah, absolutely awful. But um, anyways, with this with the Supreme Court, I don't. Some of the concerns I have with term limits, I don't know, come in because even the young Supreme Court justices are. It's like Amy Coney Barrett. I think is forty nine now. Um, and she has been a lawyer in some regards for over 20 years. So she knows generally what she's doing. Uh, she was a law professor and she spent some time on the court of appeals before that. Um, I am consistently more worried about if we make it about term limits, we're going to go through more and more of these confirmation fights. And I'm not sure if that is the best thing for the institution of the court itself. Um, I was on the Hill during the Kavanaugh hearings and I don't think I've ever, I've ever been a part of a more partisan, angry, like conflict-based environment than that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I'm not sure if, and, and like even with Amy Comey Barrett, who did not have any of the issues that Kavanaugh had, which I think you could say what you will about her qualifications. She, there weren't questions like there were with Kavanaugh. Um, and like even that was just very, very, very toxic for so many reasons, I think. Um, and so I'm not sure if the term limits is the best way, because I don't know if you really get around that partisan issue that, or this partisan perception by including term limits and then having more confirmation result bites as a result almost. Yeah. I think the only thing term limits would help is, um, the thing that I mentioned in that you, you, there would not be an incentive to just appoint the youngest justice for the sake of in, ensuring that your party uh, has control of the, the court for a generation. I guess that's fair. I guess that's fair. But um, yeah. yeah. So there, there are other sort of like smaller forms, like a, a binding set of like nonpartisan uh, rules, like, I think it'd be important to establish an in clear cut language when it's okay uh, for a president to actually nominate a justice, like during an election year, is that something that should be left up for the, the following president, you know, whether or not it's their first term, second term, blah, blah, um, nomination deadlines, uh, the, an age, is there an age limit actually for justices? I don't think so. I think it, I know there is for Congress and for the presidency, but I don't think there is. Okay. I think the one that uh, floated reform that I've heard that also has some potential is private confirmation hearings. Um, so that you would kind of avoid a, a large partisan sort of ordeal as uh, the Kavanaugh hearing, which I, I do kind of appreciate having seen um but at the same time, I can kind of understand how it leads to just a further scrutiny and uh, um, sort of breakdown in terms of the, the legitimacy of a single justice from the perspective of the public. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I think you, you touched on a couple good points. And so um, nobody who works on the Hill thinks that hearings are meant to be productive. Um, it's all theater, right? Like, it's it's performative art. Yeah. Um, and you're out there for a variety of reasons, uh, you know, to, to get more hits on your Twitter, to make your points. Um, but very few people go into a hearing thinking, I'm going to do, like, I'm here to do some serious legislating, or I'm here to really, like, grill this nominee and make sure. Um, 
I think that private confirmation hearings would be a good thing. Um, even though it kind of clashes with what I consider one of my values in government, open, open government. Um, because I think it would reduce a lot of this incentive to start digging in. I, every, every time there's a nomination, you see somebody's like high school, like, like, you know, a piece they wrote in their high school newspaper getting pulled up because it said, there was a really ridiculous one a few, uh, a while ago that it was like, <laughs> said something it was like moderately, slightly critical of Israel or something like that. Well, from- one of one of Biden's uh, nominees, I forgot what the cab. It wasn't even a cabinet position. It was something, and she had to withdraw because of some. I think it was like a single tweet that she made years ago. I, but yeah, I mean, I know exactly what you're saying, and I, I've accepted long ago. Not that I ever had any intention of running for a political office, but anyways, that I could literally never do it because there's, I'm sure, something somewhere that I wrote on Facebook or even uh, anywhere that would just tarnish me immediately. And right. And you, you don't, you're not going to have any control over the context and not saying that I'm like, Oh yeah, Connor's got skeletons in the closet. <laughs> no, but um, you know, we all said things that could be taken out of context. And for the most part, like um, I mean, most of my life has been online in the sense that it's used today. Like I think I got a Facebook when I was like 12 or something. Yeah. Um, and then the generation behind us has been all online. Um, and so if like, this is the standard we're going to increasingly get, um, just, it's just going to be tougher and tougher to find people who like truly qualify in that sense without them getting raked, excuse me, raked over the coals for something they said like this. Yeah. And that's not to say that there aren't things that are disqualifying from when you were younger, but such as the Madison Cawthorn tweet that we mentioned earlier, like not yes. that, that that alone is disqualifying, but that, you know, fitting into a larger pattern of into the whole context. Yeah. 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 Like things like that. Um, you know, I, I think there's a pretty good argument that, uh, you know, regardless of the merits of it, if Kavanaugh raped Christine Blasey Ford, then that is a disqualifying offense. I don't think there was a debate over that. I think it was, Mm-hmm. Uh, there was a lot of questions elsewhere that were people were talking about, yeah. but like that would be disqualifying, not something you s- stupid you said out of context from 30 years ago. Yeah. Um, I think, I mean, I bring up these other reforms. Um, I think the argument that some more like on the far left are making is that like, yeah, some of these are great, but first of all, like you've mentioned in practicality, none of them are going to pass because they would, require a constitutional amendment or just Congress passing something, which nowadays seems impossible. Um, uh, But also um, they just like would not be significant enough and they would take time to be implemented. We wouldn't actually see the returns on them, which is why something like court packing, which can, well, and again, like I, I don't know how legitimate of a threat that really is anyways with this Congress. Like if, we have people like cinema and Joe Manchin refusing to, you know, remove the filibuster. Like I cannot imagine them even considering uh, going along with something like core packing. So it almost seems as if this whole argument is kind of moot to begin with. Yeah. And I mean, I, I think it's important to note that cinema and Manchin are not the only people who oppose blowing yeah. the filibuster. There's They're plenty, just the most outspoken. Yeah. Right. And every, so if I'm, the third senator who's least likely to blow up the, the filibuster. I'm very happy that I do not have to answer questions about it. Yeah. Um, I mean, I heard the numbers somewhere between like four and six, maybe as many as eight Democratic senators are not about it. Um, yeah. 
And yeah, it's it's hard to see Congress, especially on something like this, is going to be perceived as extremely partisan, no matter whatever it is. It's going to be, it would be tough for me to see it making through both steps in terms of becoming a law and then getting through the actual Senate confirmation process. Mm-hmm. I do, I do want to kind of revisit one of the arguments for it, which is just like we're, I, I kind of think we're standing on a precipice where it honestly, I don't know if American democracy as we know it is going to survive the decade. And I think it requires kind of bold action and Democrats have sort of been playing in, in my mind by the rules while Republicans have largely not. And to continue trying to, to pretend as if, you know, maintain the status quo and, um, you know, acting in a way that we think is entirely not, not moral and just because I think it still is, but um, yeah. in good faith is going to work when I could very easily imagine a Republican Congress with a Republican president packing the court in four years, uh, regardless of whether, whether or not Democrats in within the next four uh, do the same. Like, am yeah. I, do you think I'm being cynical? Because like with someone like Mitch McConnell in the Senate, honestly, I think he's capable and willing to do whatever it takes to entrench power. So I, I have more of an issue with your second statement than I do with your first statement. I think that, um, you know, in a lot of ways, we, we, we dodged a bullet with how badly things could have gone. Like, with Trump just clearly trying to overturn the election against all sense of legality and all of that. But, but um, really quick though, not just Trump. I mean, first yeah. of all, like 70% of Republicans now believe the big lie and yeah. don't even think that Biden is a legitimate president. So it's kind of hard for me to take seriously the argument that they're now concerned about the legitimacy of the court. Um, yeah. And you're seeing, you know, state legislature or state legislatures around the country, um, trying to not invalidate, but like question their own election results. You're seeing the, the, uh, the recount in Arizona, which is going to lead to fucking nothing, of course. Um, so there already hey, is, they're going to find the bamboo eventually. Yeah. Yeah. The traces of bamboo and maybe a little soy sauce sprinkled in for the, the <laughs> smoking gun. Yeah. No. Um, I, my, I guess my critique is more along the lines of, I think there were much better things that we can do to reform our democracy before we get to court packing. Yeah. And I think that would be much more productive. I agree. Um, yeah. Much stronger ethics laws is an immediate start. Um, we need a more independent DOJ. I don't know how we accomplish that, but we need the DOJ further from the reach of the presidency. Um, yeah. So probably shouldn't be investigating Democratic congressmen on the House committee yeah. and their family and their kids for which is uh, which is now pretty weeks. clear that uh, it looks it came from somewhere in the White House. It's not. I don't think they've explicitly said that Trump gave the order yet, but I, I think that that we're going to get that shortly at some point. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and it wouldn't shock me, but, uh, but, but again, this is sort of what I mean. Like, like the fire alarms have been ringing for a while. Like I think right. people need to realize like our democracy is not entirely insured right now. And so it's not as stable as it used to be. No. Yeah. And I, I, I don't debate that. I'm just saying, mm-hmm. I think that there are reforms before that, that would have a great effect. Um, but also at the end of the day, you run into this issue, like what are you gonna do with these people who believe the big lie? Like I, we exist in different factual universes. They don't wanna be convinced. 
because even if you give them an explanation, they're going to draw the lines to make whatever, probably draw the letter Q. Yeah. Well, hey, man, I'm about to go to a family party with a bunch of them next week. So I'll get back to you on that. Have fun. Yeah. Um, but it, at some point, you that, that's, that's what worries me most about American democracy is that we, we are not dealing and there. To be fair, there are people on both sides, but they're mostly congregated on the right at this point. Yeah. Who, there is no there's no bridge wide enough to bridge that gap. Um, like you're not going to convince somebody who thought who thinks that Nancy Pelosi and Hillary Clinton are killing and drinking baby's blood in the basement of a DC pizza parlor <laughs> that um, you, you're not going to be able to convince them of anything because if they believe that there's nothing else. Yeah. Um, and I, that's the biggest issue to me, but I, <laughs> that's a little bit beyond the scope of what we came here to talk about. Yeah. I mean, again, that's like a whole nother conversation to be honest, but yeah. Um, um, but I, I, my, I guess my short answer is, um, and I, I kind of like said, tease this out is that I don't know how we get to a better, a more normative, normalized institution, more safe, more uh, stronger institution of the Supreme Court by packing the Supreme Court. Um, it's hard for me. And I, I agree with the argument that we have changed the court size in the past, um, but functionally, it's a normative nine justice Supreme Court. Um, and it is a partisan confirmation process. So it's hard for me to see packing the court, increasing the partisan fights over it, breaking that norm again, leads to a better institution. And I, I'll, I'll, I'll admit, you know, Republicans have broken a lot of these norms already. Um, but I, they also, they weren't the first to nuke the filibuster on judicial nominees, at least at the but, lower court level. Yeah, but again, like, there in yeah. somewhat response to obstructionism. Harry, yeah, Harry Reid, you know, nuked the filibuster specifically because McConnell's Senate blocked like the largest number of federal court uh nominations in like american history over the course of two years i would almost prefer that uh i would almost prefer things to to live out there but uh live out in kind of just obstructionism than to the politicization of the court that we've seen obviously there are tons of issues with that but but also like obstructionism kind of benefits one party you know if they can obstruct everything and show that congress and government is ineffective then it kind of helps their argument you know it benefits the minorities yeah uh, the minority party, excuse me. Well, the, not just the minority party. It benefits the party that specifically wants to prove that government is not effective and therefore like needs to be shrunk in size. And I guess that's like, fair. Yeah. Yeah. Um, um, but my, 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 but my general point is it's hard for me to see us having building more trust in an institution by breaking another norm. And I'm not going to pretend to sit here and know exactly what the best way to turn that around is. Um, I mean, I think we've talked about some of the things um, that would help, you know, um, private confirmation hearings, I think generally less parsing of nominees, judicial histories would probably go away, but that a lot of these rely on good faith. And mm. um, I think you make a good argument that um, I don't know how much good faith you can expect, because I, I know uh, Republicans have shown that they are not always acting in good faith. And I think um they're, they're Democrats as well, but you know, if the shoe's on the other foot, I don't think Republicans could trust that in good faith either. Yeah. Um, and so, I, oh, sorry. 
No, I was just going to say, I will note, I'm pretty sure RBG and Stephen Breyer have, well, RBG prior to her death, obviously, uh, came out in opposition to court packing. Um, I don't, I don't know if those, if their positions have changed. Um, But I, I mean, I would also say, again, getting back to like the good faith, like if Stephen Breyer, and now there's pressure on him to kind of retire early, which I hope honestly he does within the next like two, well, I guess the house doesn't matter, but within the next, well, yeah, no, two year or a year and a half now. um, I hope he retires so that Biden can at least fill his seat because I am not confident that if Republicans and Mitch McConnell had control of the Senate, that they would even consider um, any nominee, regardless of how close it is to the next next election. Yeah, yeah. And I, I mean, I think you bring up an interesting point because this is another thing. Like 10 years ago, it would have been unheard of for there to be a coordinated outside effort to try to get a justice of the Supreme Court to resign. Um, and I, I think that's another norm that's gone, but I also completely understand um, why it's happening. I don't feel like it's unjustified. Maybe I wouldn't do it, but um, you just, wouldn't, you wouldn't retire. You're saying, or you wouldn't no, like try to force uh, early retirement, force an early retirement, yeah, yeah, okay. like force them into retirement, I guess. Yeah. Um, but like I said, I, I don't think it's necessarily unjustified, but I do, I don't know if I would do it. Um, and that's another thing. I just we keep getting to the, where we have fewer and fewer of these norms that stand and this judicial confirmations is only one of them. Uh, one of the areas, I guess. And it's hard um, it's hard to figure out how to rebuild those norms and rebuild those tr- that trust, I guess. Yeah. Um, I think something that would go a long way in terms of restoring trust just, and well, not I don't think it's necessarily a norm, but just trust in politics in general is um, overturning Citizens United, to be honest. Like, I'm curious, like what your thoughts are, because you mentioned earlier that transparency in government is a pretty key principle for you. Um, I would agree. And I think uh, for me, a pretty large principle is just like removing money from politics in general. And I think that decision more than any has been the most costly to people's trust in government and decision-making and um, in Congress and Washington in the first place. I'm curious, like what your, what your thoughts are. And do you think that there's any hope of this current, court actually considering that? I don't know. Um, I haven't done enough research into guess guessing how they might rule on a similar issue. Um, I would be in favor of just, I guess, more transparency when the money com- is coming from. I don't think, uh, I don't know that. I Like I said, I haven't researched this that in depth, mm-hmm. but- Yeah, this, would, is a, this is a whole nother conversation. <laughs> I know, yeah, so it's- um, But I, it would be tough for me to see them overturning it in full. Um, I think- uh, but that being said, I don't know how they would react to reforms that have come up, such as disclosure of where PACs are getting money, disclosure of things like that, um, which I think could could have a great effect um, because opening up that transparency allows more eyes. Um, you know, sunshine is the best disinfectant, as Brandeis used to say. But um, oh, that was a Louis Brandeis thing. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Nice. Um, but I don't know. I, I don't think they would overturn it in full. I think that's probably a pipe dream, but um, I I don't think that they would react negatively to a lot of the reforms that have come up around money and politics 
um, maybe campaign, because I mean, campaign, don't, like limits on campaign contributions themselves have been upheld in the past. It's just when you go through PACs and then the PACs do it, that it uh, that there is no limit. Mm. Um, so maybe maybe a limit could get worked in there somehow um, or things like that. I think there are incremental reforms that probably have a lot of the effect of what it sounds like you, you're, you're hoping for without that are much more realistic than a full overturn, I guess. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Um, is there anything that you kind of want to talk more about or that you feel we haven't touched on? No, I mean, like I said, I just, um, the, <laughs> it's easy to say that the, the, the issue is lack of trust in the court. Um, but it's hard to figure out what exactly the way to fix that is. But I would say that I don't think adding justices to the Supreme Court is the way to do it. Um, I think that strikes me as it's, it strikes me mostly as just a short term fix to try to force things through. But I think you run into the issues of that you, you some of whom you brought up, which are it just is going to create an arm race by 2028. We're going to have 100 justices on the Supreme Court or something like that. Um, and it just further undermines uh, even the few norms that we have left in that area. Yeah, I would say while I think it's well-intentioned, well intentioned, um, as like a last-ditch effort, uh, ultimately I don't think it makes sense because the costs outweigh the benefits um, in that, you know, as you mentioned, it would create an arms race, like uh, going back and forth. Um, but also because like, it's almost just jumping the gun, like unless Congress can pass HR one or the John Lewis voting rights act, which again, I am not very confident it will be able to, um, then it, it, it doesn't really matter what the Supreme court looks like. And so I, I would rather see the focus and attention and also just like the political capital of Democrats in Congress being spent on those efforts as opposed to court packing. That being said, I would very much be, uh, willing and um, supportive of any effort to really kind of investigate the 555 um, proposal um, because I do think that is something that would have a lot of bipartisan support and would, again, if, if in an ideal world were to become reality, um, go a long ways in terms of kind of bridging or establishing a little bit more trust in the judicial process at the highest level. Yeah. And I, I, I certainly understand those concerns. I just think that, uh, like you said, I think they're jumping the gun at this point. I think that the much more beneficial reforms and much more lasting reforms are going to happen. Um, you know, at just the basic legislative level, whether that's, um, you know, removing unconstitutional barriers to voting um, increasing the ability of people to get involved in their government and encouraging people to do so, um, in addition to a host of ethics reforms, which I think the last four years have demonstrated are necessary because the current systems that we have are not adequate to, to handle somebody like Donald Trump. Yeah. Yeah. Well, my fingers are crossed, man, that uh, he is not reinstated as president in August, like he keeps uh, <laughs> claiming he will be. Um. I, to be honest, I'm kind of curious to see if anything is going to, going to happen in August, similar to like January 6th. Like I, I joined a bunch of like kind of far right wing, not a bunch, a few like right wing apps, like telegram mm -hmm. and stuff just to, to see like what folks are talking about. And I haven't actually logged on lately because they just make me want to fucking shoot myself. But, uh, 
but yeah, I mean, it, it's going to be interesting to see what comes, especially of this new DOJ um, uh, invest or investigation to Trump's late DOJ. Um, yeah. But yeah. And I, I don't even know, for instance, like things will go downhill too, um, which I think it's, it seems more and more likely that Trump is going to be indicted in some way for the crimes of the Trump organization. Um, and it is going to be crazy to see what happens then because you know it's going to get billed as um you know this is a literally a political witch hunt because it's going to be a democratic da of new york or ag of new york mm-hmm. coming after the former republican president and while i'm certain like i'm very confident that it'll be entirely justified um like that seems to me like that is ripe for something crazy to happen um yeah all it takes is a it doesn't take that many people it takes 10 people to really decide that they're going to go try to fuck shit up and then um you know that just becomes a snowball effect and we end up with something crazy yeah i'm i'm hopeful um that letitia james is going to be able to fucking nail him to a wall um but i'm not optimistic uh i mean he's he's tough on don for a reason I, yeah. it's, it sucks that the rich and powerful can get away with murder in this country while the average guy can go to prison for 20 years for fucking pot possession. But I shouldn't say average guy. I'm a white dude. I'd, I'd be fine, but you know, you know what I'm talking about? Yeah. More, more educational reform, more ethics reforms, more criminal justice reforms, things we can all get behind. Before we wrap this up, I'm curious, what is your outlook on the fate of American democracy in within the next 10 years? Um, I'm an optimistic person, but I'm not super optimistic. I don't, I just, I, like I said, I just worry with um, such a large percentage of our population who's less and less tied to reality. Like that, that scares me because you can't predict somebody who is that irrational. Um, and um, I remember saying this when um, January 6th happened. Um, obviously, everybody involved in that is to blame and should be held responsible. But to some extent, can you blame them if they really thought everything that they thought was true was happening? If they really think that like our country is being taken over by, you know, pedophiles who are drinking the blood of children um like i i get that it's so irrational yeah you i can't believe you came to that conclusion but like i get that i guess and that's what scares me because if they already believe this then almost anything is justifiable right yeah um and like they're willing to do a war of attrition they're all willing to go to jail for it so like what what's the barrier at that point right dude i'm like i'm at the point where i'm almost ready to start counting down to the next american civil war not that it's going to be you know a north versus south thing but i don't know maybe maybe i'm being a little too cynical and pessimistic but uh i don't know we'll see i mean america has met every challenge we face so far and so i'm hopeful that we'll meet this one but um you know what movie uh i have been meaning to rewatch is idiocracy i assume you have you seen it before i have yeah yeah Yeah. um yeah maybe maybe not that far off from our reality i know 
Um, Rondo, it's, but, it's got electrolytes though. <laughs> what's it? What's the what's the name of the sports drink again? Uh, Brondo, I think. Brondo. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. God. Well, hey man, with Louis Gomert asking the other day if we can change the orbit of Earth or the Moon to fix climate change, like we're not There's that far real, off. There are some real idiots in Congress. Gomer is one of them. Um, my personal favorite was uh, Hank Johnson, who's a Hank Johnson rep from Georgia. He at one point in a hearing said, "If we there was like a military base hearing, and he asked whoever was testifying, like if we put too many people on the island of Guam, will it tip over and sink?" No, look it up; it's hilarious. Oh my god, Dude, like, that's a, he's that, still in Congress too. Hey man, I. I, I mean, you know, Marjorie Taylor Greene gets a lot of shit for her QAnon stuff, but like, I'm sure she's not the only QAnon supporter in Congress at this point. No, I think um, I was having a conversation with somebody who still works on the Hill a few weeks ago, and she guesstimated that there's probably 20% of the Republican caucus that is like all in on this stuff. Yeah. Um, which is horrifying, first of all, but yeah. lower than you would think by the rhetoric. L- um, oh, oh, yeah, yeah. Cause that's, I mean, there's what, 200 Republicans. So like 40, 40 of them like, or like believe this and believe QAnon in some, some way, shape or form all the way from Marjorie Taylor Green, who's obviously like all in to, I'm yeah. sure some people who, you know, less on the spectrum, but. Um, Dude, that's why like, it's so hard for me. Like, so I became interested in, in politics in general because of uh climate change essentially like i my first passion was always like the environment camping outdoors and whatnot and i remember as a kid hiking on grinnell glacier in montana and learning about like climate change global warming and just like melting and like that ultimately led me to like politics and like all right why did congress block the ratification of the kyoto protocol which actually was like the first like international effort to address rising emissions blah blah long story short or fast forward, I should say, uh, I remember watching, you know, James Zinho from Idaho walking into Congress holding the snowball being like, look, it's snowing outside. How can global warming be a thing? And at that point being like, holy shit, like maybe these people really are this dumb and it's not them just like pretending to be in order to appease their like corporate donors and lobbyists and whatnot. And, and now I'm just like full send, like, holy shit. There are a lot of idiots in congress not just congress like in you know everywhere important decision making there were there are positions. a lot of idiots out there yeah yeah um i i would say i also do have a i have a higher view of public servants than most people do i think that there are a lot of people who are just a lot of people in congress who are just dumb and stupid um i think there's a lot of them who mean well and see the only way to do like do right by what whatever their belief system is, is to sell themselves on these little issues that people vote on um, to to stay relevant and stay in Congress. Because, um, you know, the you can't do whatever you want to do if you're not there, right? Um, and so I remember there was, one of my friends told me there was like three issues that his district cared about, like this, his boss's district cared about. It was like abortion, guns, and one other thing. Um, but like, as long as they were pro Second Amendment and pro abortion, they could get up there and do whatever they wanted, and they would keep coming back. And I say whatever he wanted, but like, he had some like real passions about like economic policy. And to him, if he's willing to 
you know, do whatever the base wants on that and can keep going and work on economic policy, that's a trade he's willing to make. Right. Yeah. Um, and I mean, it, that's why like Bernie Sanders does so well with independence in Vermont because he, he's like pretty pro gun pro guns in a state with a lot of single issue voters who are like, all right, as long as he is defending the second amendment, like I don't care how liberal he is on everything else. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so you get a lot of these weird mixes where like, and I, I think probably it factors into this, uh, the current issues we have, because, you know, a lot of Republicans now are obsessed with the idea that the election was stolen or that there is extreme amounts of voter fraud. And I'm willing to bet that a lot of the representatives in both federal Congress, but also in states everywhere, looked at this and said, okay, well, if I indulge my base on this, then I can go do something else that I want. But I'm also, I get to be a member of Congress and that has all the perks and all things like that. Um, and it, it's disappointing to a certain extent. Um, and I think it requires a lot of kind of self-introspection to say, what, what would it take to get me there, I guess? Um, like, at what point are you willing to s- completely go all in on the lie like that? What would it mean to you? Um, so, for instance, I could ask you, how far would you indulge this election kind of conspiracy issue? Maybe that's not the best example. But if it meant you could go past meaning, meaningful climate change uh, reform. And like, I, I think that's, um, you know, an undersold kind of balance that a lot of, and certainly there are crazy people who will do it anyway, but a lot of representatives, I think, and elected officials kind of look at it in this balancing way. Um, yeah, I, I think they're being, uh, I think a lot of the politicians themselves are kind of just being um, realistic about it. Like they're looking out for their own political futures and they're looking at polling and they're saying, all right, they're, a growing majority of conservatives are base who are, you know, listening to Ben Shapiro or watching like all the, the pundits on Fox and you know, further far right news outlets who are just telling them every day in and out that like the election was stolen. And so they, they need to react to that and represent like those views, even though I would assume a lot of the politicians know that it's all bullshit, maybe not a lot, but a decent number. Um, yeah. And I think like for them, it's just like political expediency, like in order for them to advance policies that they actually want to get forward and pass, they have to kind of go along with that. But in my mind, it's kind of like you're, you're just sacrificing your integrity. And yeah, it's hard for me to say this, uh, not being in that position of power in the first place, but it, I, I think a lot of these people are kind of underestimating the damage that's being done by them not coming out and speaking out against this stuff and just letting this big lie go um just like gain steam you know yeah yeah and i I don't disagree with that at all i mean i think that's a very accurate characterization of how things are and something that i found really effective um and it, it almost creates this um like escalation factor to where if like i'm willing to do this what's what's the thing that next i'm not willing to do and so something that i found pretty effective when i've talked to people is um, kind of figuring out where your mind is. Cause like, it's frankly, it's something that nobody thinks about on a daily basis. Like at what point does sacrificing my own interests um, is what point is that outweighed by something else? Like at what um, point does the, do the ends justify the means you're saying? No, no, no. I would or, say uh, at what point does that not shift? So um, like, for instance, if you, if your line in the sand wasn't Trump saying, 
let the, you know, go, I, I forget the exact quote, um, but like when he was at the rally on January 6th saying, basically go hold Congress accountable. And then the mob goes down constitution. Um, you know, if that's not your line for him, I don't know what it is like, but you should know what your line is. Um, yeah. If that's not your line, what is? Um, and so kind of like figuring out where that line in the sand is where, cause like Trump was very good for me, for a lot of my policy preferences. Um, but I, I reached my point a long time ago where I was just like this, the trade-off is not there. Um, for, and- for me, for me. And again, like I was never a Trump supporter, but like, I was always trying to put myself in the position of, you know, certain family members who did support Trump rather begrudgingly. Um, for me, the point in the sand was Charlottesville. And I think that's something that Biden has talked a lot about. Like that's what is essentially inspired him to run for office. Like that was kind of like a defining moment and like, all right, now we're really seeing his true character. Not that it was really that hidden before, but, but like we kind of see who his main supporters are and not his, well, yeah. I mean, essentially who, who generates the most amount of buzz around him. And, And so that was, to me, what I would imagine the point in the sand being had I been a yeah. Trump supporter, which I fuck no, never was, but yeah. Yeah. But like, uh, but that's my point is that nobody thinks about this like, kind of line in the sand. And mm-hmm. that's something that I found. I, I think it resonates with people because um, it's like I said, it's not something that you think about. It's not something you do. It's always easy to say, okay, well, you know, this is okay because of this reason, but like figure out what, um, where that line is, where the trade-off switches to where the end no longer justifies the means and so on. Um, and I, I think it, at the very least, I think it's a helpful intellectual exercise, um, even if it doesn't change anything. But like it forces you to ask that question yourself. It doesn't let you keep getting away with, oh, well, it's just one more thing. Oh, and so on, so on, so on. Yeah. Well... It's, it is at least reassuring to know that as a future lawyer, uh, that you at least still value evidence-based arguments and reasoning and uh, aren't buying into the, the big lie. Not that I ever expected you to in the first place, but yeah, I'm, I'm, hope, I'm hopeful that these kind of level-headed conversations will uh, continue within the next 10 years, even if our collective democracy does not. <laughs> Yeah, I've got to figure out whether I want to go to Canada or somewhere else first. <laughs> yeah, shit. Um, yeah, but uh, let's hope let's hope neither of us have to make that decision. Yeah, seriously. Yeah. All right, man. Well, um, I appreciate you joining as always. Um, you're always welcome back to to shoot the shit over a different topic of conversation, of which there are many. <laughs> Fair enough. All right. Well, I, I appreciate the invite, man. You know, I, I enjoy having these conversations with you and I, I, I mean, I think they're productive, but I also just find it interesting. Um, so yeah, thank you for the invite. Yeah, of course, man. Anytime. All right. Well, that concludes my conversation with Jacob about court packing. I hope you learned something or at the very least just kind of questioned your own opinions on the matter in some small way. Like I said at the top, feel free to reach out to me via email or on social media to share your thoughts and feedback. Uh, Within the last 48 hours, by the way, the Supreme Court has made a few significant big decisions. 
Uh, also, the Senate Republicans blocked the Democrats' voting rights bill yesterday that we mentioned in our conversations a few times. So I, I'm saying this because I think the topics of the Supreme Court and just our eroding democracy are ones that will dominate the national conversation for the foreseeable future. And I definitely want to do another episode that perhaps examines what I consider other legitimate threats to the future of American democracy, like the filibuster and just obstructionism in Congress. So stay tuned for that. I will point out I did do an episode in, I think, season one about how I believe the evidence is pretty clear that the modern GOP does not support democracy, uh, at least in its purest form. So I encourage those who haven't listened to it to actually check it out because it's definitely pertinent to what we are witnessing today. Uh, And it's something that I think I want to expand on in that future episode. Anyways, thanks again to Jacob for joining me, and thank you all for listening. Uh, If I don't publish an episode next week, which honestly I doubt I will because I'll be traveling, then have a good 4th of July weekend, and I will talk to you again soon. Cheers.